Hello, and welcome to Rocket Talk, the Tor.com podcast. I am Justin Landon, your host. My guest tonight is a huge Star Wars fan. She's been on Jeopardy, where she was accused of making the worst final Jeopardy wager in history. She's won an international pun competition and writes for the Washington Post. Her book, A Field Guide to Awkward Silences, is out June 14th in paperback. She is none other than Alexandra Petri. Welcome, Alexandra. Thanks for having me. It's not every day that I get a, a Washington Post uh, illuminus on uh, on the show. Oh, I, mean, I like that term. It makes me sound like I've got like a fancy eye sticking out of a triangle somewhere. Yeah, well, <laughs> we've got a lot of big big vocabulary around here that that is actually misused. Is really how I try to try to do it. <laughs> so now, most people who listen to the show uh, may not know you as a Washington Post columnist. Uh, I hope that changes before this is over. But they all certainly know one of your Twitter feeds because uh, you are in yeah. fact you are in fact emo Kylo Ren on Twitter. Is this correct? That's me, yeah. Or I should say that's my like all of my live journal posts from eighth grade. That that's emo Kylo Ren, basically. So you've just been mining your own teenage angst. Oh, to to the max. But before I jump into some specific questions on this, Twitter is your favorite social media platform. Yes or no? Oh, hands down, yeah. There's always people in, like, it's like a big cafeteria where there's always tables sort of interested in whatever you're interested in. So you can walk in and be like, today I'm going to sit with the cool girls who are watching the awards show, and we're all going to talk about that. Or you can go over and, like, there's nerd Twitter always, like, hanging out at its table, you know, in its heavy jackets and swapping notes. So there's always something going on. And... There's always people to talk about it with, which is fun to sort of feel like you're all watching the same thing. Whereas like Facebook, it's all just like, oh, I've had a baby. You're like, look at my nails. They're perfect. And so it's much less personal and more, much more about like, what are we talking about? Right. Yeah. No, and I love it when they overlap, you know, when like, uh, you know, I'll be on like geek publishing Twitter and then all of a sudden it becomes Oscar Twitter. And I'm like, why do you, you guys shouldn't like this stuff? But it's you see all this cool overlap, which I really get a kick out of. No, it's true. Like, so many people have more facets than you expect. And you're like, I didn't realize that you also cared about Ina Garten. Or, you know, I thought you were all into social justice, but apparently you love bees. <laughs> one, of my, one of my good writer friends <laughs> is uh, really into bee, beekeeping. He keeps bees on his property. So this is like his, his thing as he tweets about fantasy books and, uh, and bees. It's... Apparently you keep them in garbage bags. Like, you can store honey in garbage bags. I don't know if this is accurate. I just learned it from like watching a play where a character was a beekeeper. And I always feel like information you get from plays is kind of suspect. But that being said, I think you can store it in trash bags. Uh, plays are certainly no, no more or less suspect than the internet, right? So, I mean, I'm willing to roll with it. That's true. But like, if you post an incorrect fact in a play, like nobody's going to correct you in real time. I like wrote a play once where I made a joke about Frank Miller like not drawing Batman, and it took like months. And someone was like, "By the way, he also he did some drawings for that. You might want to go and and like edit the draft." And I'm like, "Too late. The play has closed." But uh, so you got you, your play got well actually. It it got well actually very very slowly over time. I actually caught myself well actually the other day. It was really it was really <laughs> devastating for me. I got a positive well actually on Twitter today. Actually, I mean, well, actually, I got a positive well, actually, because I was saying, hey, we should have TIE fighter bow ties. And somebody responds, well, actually, with a picture. It turns out they've been making them for years, and my trillion-dollar idea is going to have to be something different. But I was so excited. Like, it's a bow tie fighter. It's got the same shape, and it's got the little thingamajiggers, the panels. Is this for purchase? Yeah, yeah, you can buy them on Etsy, which I guess everything can be bought on Etsy. It's like that Hamilton joke. Everything's legal in New Jersey, but 
all TIE Fighter ties can always be bought on Etsy. You get Star Wars heels and everything. Wow. So, all right, my son is three years old, and he is now getting a TIE Fighter bow tie. That's that's definitely going to happen. Oh, he's going to be the swankest three-year-old. For sure. So, um, back to Emo Kylo Ren. Like, I can't decide if it is a commentary on, like, toxic masculinity or millennials or, like, just how we're all assholes as teenagers. I mean, <laughs> what do you define the Kylo Ren account as? Well, I think mostly what happened was I saw the movie and I left the theater and I was like, okay, where are the Kylo Ren jokes? Because especially during that last fight with Ray, and, like, there's that moment when he takes his head lit off and all, his beautiful Garnier Fructis hair just flies free. And that was funny. But then the moment when he starts, like, lecturing Ray on how to use the Force as she's, like, physically beating him in a lightsaber battle, he's like, no, listen, listen, you need a teacher. And I'm like, oh, this guy has cornered me at parties before. What, where are the Kylo Ren jokes? And then I saw it a second time, and I left the theater then. There still were the Kylo Ren jokes. And I'm like, I need to be the Kylo Ren jokes that I want to see in the world. And so I think it's a combination of that. But what's funny is the more I've been doing him, the more I've been, like, he's sort of crept into my sympathies and grown on me like a fungus. And I'm starting to be like, well, you know, this kid's parents weren't there. And, like, why was his mom so active in the workforce? Why couldn't she spare some time for him? So he's really, like, I'm almost, like, dreading his redemption arc. Uh, do you think that the uh, the writers or J.J. Abrams or whoever we want to credit with the creation of this film, do you think they knew that Kylo Ren was such a turd? Well, it's a sort of like the Jared Leto Joker where I can't tell if they're, if everything where he's like bad at being a villain is on purpose to make him a richer character. Because I actually think he's a tremendously rich and interesting character because of all the ways where he's a Vader fanboy who's doing his best to live up and is sort of falling short of that and having tantrums. Like it's, actually fascinating and really cool but to the extent where they like think he's genuinely menacing i think they've miscalculated so they're like this is a maximum edgelord who like totally knows what he's doing and like all the stuff about his ashtray full of human remains i don't know if you were following this controversy when they were announcing on like the dvd extras that oh yeah that tray of weird ashes that he stores the vader helmet in is actually the remains of his enemies. And everyone was like, whoa, just when we had convinced ourselves that it might be okay for him to like slowly creep back towards the light side, he's like storing his helmet in human remains. And so I think like stuff like that makes me think maybe they're not entirely sure of this thing that they've made. Yeah, this sounds like one of those things where the, uh, the tie-in novel probably has details that are just best left out, you know? That's not the film. Yeah, not, it, let, always, yeah. always. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong, but as I was doing some of my hard-hitting research for the show, is there a fake emo Kylo Ren account that looks identical to yours? There's like six of them. There's a fake emo Kylo Ren account that has like half as many followers and just retweets the same tweets. Then there's a Facebook page, which isn't me, that just copies the tweets and occasionally like takes memes from Tumblr and uses them. And then there's some totally original, awesome things like there's somebody on Tumblr who does like gifs were using adam driver and han solo i mean harrison ford sorry uh, he exists in the real world too um, just interacting as a family and like those are great and i'm not in any way responsible for that but i just love it and very lonely luke is also a totally separate person even though we'll get into battles from time to time and you're not like mean girl ray or any of those other fun no i love them though okay Actually, I got the best compliment ever from Very Lonely Luke because he sent me a DM being like, this is really fun. You're like one of the funnier dudes on Twitter. And I'm like, oh, my God, he thinks I'm a man. I'm funny enough that he thinks I'm a man, which is very exciting to me. Um, but I think we need to start a campaign right here and now to get emo Kylo Ren a blue check mark. 
I agree. I think he's a legitimate figure, and I don't want him to get tired and overused and like every day he's tweeting, but I think he still has stories to tell from his, he can go, he can go to prom. He, he got stuck recently on a weird bachelor weekend with Han and Chewbacca. I think there's stories there and he, he deserves a venue for them. Speaking of Chewbacca, did you see uh Chewbacca lady today on the, Oh my God, did I, it was delightful. I have never seen so much joy in a middle-aged woman in my life. And it was fantastic. No, seriously. I like hope that I look into my, in the eyes of my firstborn child and am that happy because I'm not sure. Honestly, like her response was just so beautiful. I like was watching it and somebody else turns to me and says, Oh, I just watched that. You're going to laugh hysterically. Like it, and it did not disappoint. Well, the best part about it was like, it was not laughing. We were not laughing at her. Like I was very much laughing with no. her, which is amazing. Yeah. Wow. No, exactly. Exactly. Uh, God, God bless the internet. Is is it kind of weird for you though that this parody account of yours has is going to reach a million followers probably this year at some point? Uh, and like, I mean, that's a lot of that's a lot of presence online for something that is not actually associated with your name. Has that been kind of strange? Well, it's been kind of strange and fun because. I always am the type of writer where I like to make something and have people see it, and I'm not necessarily like, oh, I also want to be super famous personally. So I'm glad that that was my attitude going in. Otherwise, I would be super frustrated. But I kind of like it, although it's weird. Like, what amazed me is how many tweens have, like, latched onto him. And I keep talking about him in the third person, like some sort of weirdo, as you probably noticed. You're like, what's she doing? But it's – because at first I was like, oh, yeah, this is going to be, like, about – how he's like a men's rights activist and like a satire. And then all these tweens kept being like, this is my life. And like all these Tumblr gals whom I just respected the Jesus out of were like, oh man, like, look at this guy. Like he's going through finals and he's applying to college and like all the stuff that I'm going through. And so I'm like, oh my God, no, now I can't like, because I was originally going to just end it after like a hundred tweets and have him, you know, be like, I'm building a lightsaber to take to school that will show them that would just be the last tweet. But then I'm like, it's no, that's way too dark. I can't do that now. There's tweens following me, <laughs> but it's weird. Cause I'm like, I, I don't know how I'm going to end it. At first I was like, maybe we could publish his diary and we like pitched it. And everyone was like, ha ha Lucasfilm will need to sign off on that. And they were like, Oh, it's hilarious that you, you think that we would sign off on that, but keep doing what you're doing. We appreciate the free publicity. Yeah. Uh, not in so many words. Um, Lucasfilm, please make my Star Wars rom-com if you're listening to this podcast. Uh, we'll see what we can do. We'll see what we can do. I mean, maybe maybe there's a future for you in the next, you know, uh, Disney XD Star Wars comedy spinoff. It's, it's possible. No, I'm telling you, yeah, they just, they're going to keep making them. Eventually, they're going to get to the part of the barrel where I reside, and then I have so many ideas to fish them. So I read um, a good chunk of your book, and... You talk about that you inhabited a, a character for a while named Gloria, who is like a, an expert at failure, which is quite a bit of fun. And, but now you've created Emo Kylo Ren. Like, are there other like parody accounts that you've created that just fell flat? Or, or is this your first time? No, every so often I'll start to think, because I'm like, this is going to be it. I'm going to co- become a Vine star. Um, but like, I'll get an email being like, hey, you have an updated like extra ready for Hillary. I think at one point I started some sort of like ready for Hillary parody. I don't even remember what this is, but I'll get emails from it from time to time. But I've been doing this for like decades now. When I was in like high school, I started the Trojan War homework help forum where I pretended I was like a person who was qualified to give you homework help as opposed to 
a 14-year-old high school student, and there was this kid named Lee J from Canada who kept emailing me being like, hey, I have questions about the Trojan War. I'm trying to write a story about Achilles. And I was sending back these detailed responses being like, listen, as someone who's been in high school once, it's important that you do your own work. And I was like, he'll never, he'll never know. But yes, I've, they're strewn all over the internet. I did, I traded like a fake like travel.gov when they had that whole thing about like, you must be a 10 to travel overseas. I started a little one for that. And it got a tiny bit of traction, but like there was only one joke in it, which I quickly discovered. And so then I left it by the wayside. Um, all right. So you are clearly super into Star Wars. Uh, you've been a fan all your life. Is that correct? That is very correct. Okay. Like I, me as well. Uh, my, my three year old has become obsessed with it, uh, deeply. He's never actually watched the movies because he's three, but. Right. He, he has like the gu- correct. Yeah, he has like the guidebook though, and he like he like memorizes the characters, and it's really grade one level obsession. And I I'm you know pretty pretty pleased with it overall. Um. So, but like I have like, to like who's he latch on to? Like what's his? Well, you know, it started off. It was he all like, shiny. Noodles counts. Yeah, no, it was all shiny characters at first, right? So it was like Darth Vader, the stormtroopers, because yeah, he wanted like the shiny things, right? And let's be real, the evil characters in Star Wars are way more interesting oh, than the oh, good ones. So shiny. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but now he's, he's coming back to the, uh, to, to Luke and to, uh, and to Anakin a little bit. And it's going to totally blow his mind when he finds out that Anakin's, you know, a bad mamma jamma. So. Oh man. Yeah. It's going to be devastating. So, so let me ask you a question then, like as, as somebody who, uh, it has wide ranging interests, like what is it that makes Star Wars so institutionally attractive? Part of me is like, just wants to start quoting the special edition commentary at you and be like, it's a multi-generational modern day myth. But I do actually think, like, the whole sort of Joseph Campbell thing is often invoked to explain it, where it's like, ah, oh, it's the hero's quest, and, like, we just love watching people bring boons back to the community. But it is that. It's like, if you were an archaeologist and you dug up our civilization, you'd be like, oh, this was what they worshipped. That totally makes sense. That's why there's, like, a life-size Chewbacca in her bedroom, because she thought this was a god. Like, they'd be very confused to be like, no, no, they think this is fiction. Um, and so I just, the story always resonated with me and it also was interesting finding different characters to identify with as I got older so I wasn't like bored by it like it sort of grew up with me which a lot of things like you read them the first time and you're like oh yeah this dynamic 14 year old prairie girl really speaks to me and then you read it again and you're like what's everyone thinking but in Star Wars it was like oh like Luke's the protagonist and I get him and then later I was like oh C-3PO he's an English major like me he has no useful skills and all his friends are constantly (laughs) annoyed by him and I was like, this is great. So I'm looking forward to continuing to see, you know, who speaks to me next and how it grows over time. I think it's, you know, it's a remarkably enduring narrative. It's just fascinating cultural stu- touchstone. Like, I, I I can't really wrap my head around it, but I guess it's just been with us so long that it's become sort of like a fabric of, and I, I hesitate to say American society because it's been so exported. Uh, and it's probably at this point America's greatest export. <laughs> But yeah, and it's sort of weird, too, because I was like, you remember like growing up as a nerd being like, oh, I'm like the only person who's into this. And then like you get to like Twitter and everyone, anytime there's like a hint of Star Wars news, like all of Twitter is suddenly like, oh, by the way, we're equally obsessed with it. It's weird noticing how like mainstream it is, which I guess I, I shouldn't ever have thought it wasn't mainstream, given that it's in toothpaste constantly. But somehow I always thought it was like my special thing. And like it turns out it's literally everyone's special thing. Yeah. So on that note, do you have like any other geeky pleasures? I mean, are are we going to catch you reading Game of Thrones on the Metro or or anything like that? Have you read Star Wars Expanded Universe? I mean, are, 
Like, so I, like, I'm not as into the expanded universe, although having to maintain Kylo is like, whenever there's an update to one of the books, I suddenly, like, have to follow it, which has been fun and interesting, which I'm glad I wasn't into it, because then they destroyed all of it, like Alderaan, and it floated away into, you know, an asteroid field and disappeared. So I'm glad that I wasn't invested in it when it got nuked. But now my other guilty geek pleasures, I mean, Lord of the Rings, obviously, and although not to like a Stephen Colbert level, he's beyond, but other than that, like Edwardian literature and like, uh, like Greek and Roman mythology, I'm like a myth geek in general. I tried to read all of Grimm's fairy tales and trying to get all the way through Hans Christian Andersen's now, and they're super weird. I don't know why we just let this one man in like the 19th century be like, by the way, I'm going to make up a bunch of fairy tales for you and they're just going to be canon now, but we did, and it's great that we did. But they're also bonkers. Like, have you ever read The Bachelor's Nightcap? Because let me tell you, it's it's about a bachelor whose nightcap takes him on magical journeys. And it's like, Hans Christian Andersen, what were you doing? Wait, is like his nightcap like a couple of fingers of liquor or like literally his hat that goes on his head? It's, it's literally a hat. It's oh. his sleeping hat. And there's another one about like a child who falls asleep before a geometry test or sorry, like a geography test. And then all the geographical places come to him in his dream and explain to him mnemonic devices that he could use to remember them because he helped an old man cross the street before falling asleep. <laughs> it's, the morals are very confusing. I think I understand why these particular fairy tales haven't quite reached Zeitgeist level within our culture, perhaps. Some of the others I get, but maybe these ones are a little more esoteric. Yeah, like Little Mermaid totally... You know, makes sense. Emperor's new clothes. But then you get to the deep cuts like Hans the Hedgehog. <laughs> uh, and Hans the Hedgehog is just, uh, is just, uh, crazy, crazy one where like the basic moral is don't assume hedgehogs are illiterate because otherwise they'll, they'll shame your daughter. Like Google this. I'm telling everyone like Google Hans the Hedgehog right now and your life will be your life will be radically altered. Like everybody's rushing to Project Gutenberg right now to download the whole thing, right? I'm into that. No, seriously, yeah, it's like a super long fairy tale about. He turned out to be a prince in the end because they always turn out to be princes. But the basic gist is his father like kicks him out and he's like, "But what gift would you like, my hedgehog son?" And the hedgehog son says, "Well, I'd like a pair of bagpipes, please." And he goes and sits in a tree and plays the bagpipes. And this is just a normal thing that happens in the story. And everyone accepts it. And then he gives some directions to some kings. And one of them assumes that he's illiterate and can't read this contract where he promises him his daughter, but not really. And it's, it's a whole lot of stuff is what I'm getting at. Uh, I, I dig that. So I guess then, so you've probably never been uh, to like a geek convention. You, you went to Harvard though, right? Correct? Are you yeah, Harvard? which yeah. is a geek convention. Well, fair enough. There's actually a, a geek literature convention at Veracon. It's called Veracon and it's at Harvard. Oh, wait, I think I've definitely, because the HRSFA, Harvard Radcliffe Science Fiction Association, like, I don't think I went to Vericon, but I was definitely, like, aware of that, because I had some friends who were hardcore HRSFA-ers, and, like, my main undergrad thing was I worked on the drag show, (laughs) which was, like, maybe less nerdy, I'm not sure, equal number of puns, but uh, fewer orcs. Okay. All right. Puns. I got to This is good. Good. Good segue. You're a professional. Uh, <laughs> so h- uh, hilariously, my my boss has been uh, jokingly saying that she's going to enter me into the pun competition in Austin, which you actually won. Yes. 
The O. Henry. Yes. You should do it. You should do it. Well, so I'm not a, I'm a little uncomfortable with the like pun routine, like where you did the president's names, which is great. Like the pun routine scares me. The more, the pun slinger part seems a little more my speed, which is just like random punning. Just like on the spot, random punning. Although that's actually like much more of a grueling endurance test than the one where you've like prepared something. Right. And it, it, is go, it goes on for like four hours. Oh my God. Which, if you're into that sort of thing, it's like, oh, I'm watching the ring cycle. And if you're not into that sort of thing, it's like, oh, I'm watching the ring cycle. But uh, yeah, I, I, I love puns, but I don't know if I could go for like more than 30 minutes. I'm going to be honest. So well, it sort of depends on the category. Cause if you're doing like nautical craft at a certain point, you just sort of run out of boats. And then you start going into things that are decreasingly relevant to the category and the judges have to rule on whether like causes are acceptable or not. Or if you have like a really broad category, then you're just like farming. Literally that went on for like maybe 58 minutes. Oh my God. I mean, yeah, boating, as long as I can get into like, can I use Gilligan in boating? Is that allowed? Or does it have to be like actual nautical terms? Like, I don't know. This is, this is going to blow my yeah, mind. Yeah, so you know, these are, the, these are the kind of questions. So it's as much a trivia thing as actually a pun thing. Interesting. Which is sort of, um, uh, so I have to ask. So you 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 claim to have won an international pun competition. So I, I does that mean that people who speak English from like all over the world show up? Or are you like competing against people who pun in Mandarin? Like I'm confused. No, they like they call it the like Henry International Pun Competition, which because like sometimes someone will show up from England and be like, I too am here to make puns. There was a dude dressed as a chicken who was from England my year, sure. and he laid an egg. Oh. But womp womp womp. No, that's that's really yeah. He cracked us up. He had lots of yolks. <laughs> All white. Yeah. Oh, uh, bumming you out here. Oh, the pun. The pun. It's a it's a it's a double edged sword. Um. <laughs> so, but you won this thing, right? And did you enjoy it? You you've like been back multiple years. Is this like is this a f- oh yeah no, fun event? It. It's like my yeah no it's so much fun and it's, the pun community is great because. You just get there and you know, oh, well, I'm among my people now. So you don't have to worry about making the groaner because everyone else around you is rushing to make exactly the same groaner. So it's wonderful. You mentioned trivia a second ago. You are also a a Jeopardy contestant at one point. And Jeopardy in my home was uh, something of a ritual that we watched it every day. My dad tried to go on the show and and made it as far as the interviews and uh, apparently he was not interesting enough but uh, oh no but DVR changed everything about Jeopardy for me and I just want to run this by you real quick <laughs> so my mom really hates Alec Trebek and so she insisted on fast forwarding through like those obnoxious interviews between rounds and like ever since oh, I yes. I feel like the show really lost something when she did that um, I feel like those interviews are central to the to the show's like entertainment value so what do you what do you think I think you need them for the narrative for like, who are these contestants? Otherwise you have to judge them only by each individual trivia answer. And that's much less to go on than you think it is. Then again, sometimes the story, I, I feel like everyone I know who's been on, which once you go on, they invite you to like a Jeopardy Facebook group, which is the most active Facebook group I've ever been a member of. There's like six posts a day being like, I had a Jeopardy related thought this afternoon. And it's like, that's awesome. Wow. There's a lot of us, wow. <laughs> but no, but I feel like everyone I know who's been on, they're all like the one story I was not expecting to have to tell, and that was frankly the least interesting of my six possible stories that I gave them on cards, was the one they asked about. And that was certainly true for me. I don't even remember what I said. 
So maybe your mom's onto something. Yeah, I, I don't know. She, I think she just really likes to judge people based on like their facial expressions and like, and I, I don't think she wants <laughs> any more information. I think she wants to judge them based solely on like the weird facial tics or verbal like giveaways that they have. I, I really think that's what it comes down to, but um, I don't know. But did like, was, I feel like Jeopardy is, was it awesome? It feels like it would be awesome. No, it was totally awesome. It was just, I'm glad that I went on when I went on because that was the most sort of AP chem, like AP knowledge I've ever going to have. Cause I like just gotten out of high school. So I had like all the areas that I was never going to touch again during college. I'm like, Oh, I'm going to be a math major, which was a huge lie. I became like an English major. So I, I've gotten farther and farther away from like general knowledge. So I'm really glad that I went on when I went on, but at the same time, it's like, Oh, I can never go on again. And now like I would have appreciated it so much more and like inhaled Trebek's distinctive musk so much more, uh, wistfully or some other appropriate adverb. Do, do, but you competed in adult Jeopardy, not like not like college Jeopardy, right? I did, yeah, because that was the only online test that was available when I turned 18. So I'm like, well, let's see what happens. <laughs> that turned out to be what happened. I mean, I, I give you props because college Jeopardy, it's like not even the same game. You know what I mean? No, yeah. I think you can go on regular Jeopardy after college, but I could be wrong. I'm not sure. Yeah. And you have to go on in a sweatshirt. And it's like, who wants to go on TV in a sweatshirt? Right. And, you know, I mean, unless you go to, I wish, I wish somebody had gone on there from like Fresno State or something. I just feel like there's like really yeah. a, an overabundance of Ivy League sweatshirts. So. No, and you're never like rooting for the person in the Harvard sweatshirt, just like in life in general. You're never like, oh, this guy, he's a real underdog. You know, <laughs> he's really pulled himself up by his bootstraps onto Jeopardy. That's right. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> golden plated bootstraps. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so you have this book. It came out last year. It's coming out in paperback in a few weeks. Um, and it's like a collection of essays, I guess, is how I would, I would characterize it. Um, were these like essays that you'd written over the years and then restructured for the book? Or is this like all original for the book that you wove together at, to write a book? It was pretty much all original for the book, except for the story about the dog who kicks the bucket. Spoiler alert, the dog dies. I guess every dog dies. Wow, that's really depressing. I never like put all those thoughts together. Um, but except for that chapter, everything was pretty much written for the book. They were all stories that I've been sort of like telling, like in storytelling settings on stage or like stand-up type deals, but had never sort of sat down and typed out and collated or whatever the Microsoft Word term is for forming them into a compendium. Um, yeah. So are, are any of them like apocryphal or, or like, did you keep pretty, pretty true to life? I honestly, the weirder it sounds, the more likely it is to be like exactly and scrupulously true <laughs> because you can't make most of this stuff up. And like the ones with like, Oh, this is a fairy tale. Like those are literally fairy tales, but everything else is just, I changed the names and I'm really bad at changing names. There's a friend in there whose name became cart which is not a person's name. I, I just like ran out of human names. I'm like, you'll be cart and you're going to be dwee. And it's like, these are, these are not words. What are you doing? But no, everyone's in there and it's uh, accurate enough that I was like, Oh God, my mom's going to read this. And then she's going to kick me out of the family forever. I just, I just want to make sure we're not going to have a Ben Carson situation in the future. Yeah. I want to make sure. That... <laughs> no, no. All my hammer attacks were completely and scrupulously accurate. Uh, all right. I never, good. I'm just looking out for your future, for your future enterprise. You know what I mean? 
Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I don't want to be mocked by Donald Trump on account of I said that I attacked someone with a hammer. <laughs> Which I, you have to give him that. That's a very strange thing to be forced to defend where you're like, no, no, listen, I was a horribly violent youth. You don't understand how troubled I was. <laughs> this this political cycle has just been it's amazing. Oh, I, I, look, I love it, but it's also terrible. I, but I have to think as a as a at least I mean you don't just do politics, but that's certainly part of your of your writing. Like uh, this has to be though, like a reporter's dream or a columnist's dream, right? Like you don't get this, but once a decade. You know exactly. But it both is and isn't. Because I feel like a person who didn't get enough of a fair shake this election, and you'll have to trust me on this because this is not a visual medium, but I'm literally wearing a piece of Ted Cruz-themed workout gear that I bought, and it arrived like two days after he dropped out of the race. But my whole thesis this election was that Ted Cruz is actually way funnier than everyone gave him credit for. Like, he would tell us about his wife to sing her show tunes as like a form of relaxation. And because Donald Trump has been sucking all the oxygen out of the cycle, no one had time to really stop and appreciate Ted. And, like, there are all these tweens making memes, being like, this man's the Zodiac killer, and, like, posing with him and asking him to ask their dates to prom, and he would do it with a smile. And instead of being, like, basically all the sort of minor characters, it's like a Game of Thrones election. All the minor characters would have been enough to sustain their own franchises, but we just have this Donald Trump, like, eating everyone for breakfast, and so we can't appreciate, like, the rich character building that went into literally everyone else in the field. So I wish we'd space it out better. Yeah, no, it's true. And I really think we did not get the full benefit of the 13 candidates. I mean, they really dropped off just too fast. I think we really needed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, Rand Paul coming all the way to the end. With these guys. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We should have, uh, the Republicans no, should have loaned some to the, they should have loaned some to the Democrats, you know, I mean, just to, just to fluff the stage up a little bit. I think that would have been good. That would have been good, although we did get to have that beautiful moment with Lincoln Chaffee being a block of granite, and <laughs> that was worth it. And, and good old Martin O'Malley. He seems like a good sport. Oh, yeah. He, he was always there. He's a nice-looking man. <laughs> Trying to be a cool dad. Yeah. Going on morning shows, playing Taylor Swift. The hallmark of a cool individual. Yeah. Showing up with your guitar just casually on the morning show. Oh, what's that? <laughs> Do I play the guitar? Why, yes. I'm Martin O'Malley, a singing dad. Uh, but, yeah, we never got to explore that. On the subject of politics, uh, uh, real quick here as we kind of start to wrap up. Um, so uh, your father was a was a congressman for uh, 35 years. Um, I don't think you are 35 years old. I think you're quite a bit younger than that. So you grew up around the organization. Um, I did. And uh, things have changed there, like, significantly especially in the last 10 years uh i mean it's been a dramatic shift i mean now you sort of cover it to some degree um i mean from your perspective as somebody who's been there for essentially your whole life like how is the environment in dc shifted well i think one of the bigger shifts is sort of the question of like how much time you get to spend in the room getting to know the people who have like all shown up to be they're representing their districts with you. Because before, like, not to say, like, smoke-filled rooms, because I, like, I feel like pundits love to talk wistfully about smoke-filled rooms and say, oh, you know, there was a time when we used to make backdoor deals and it was terrific. And backdoor deals, whatever the term is. But 
there was the idea that like there would be a moment when the cameras were off and you'd get to sort of know these people as people and say, well, we might be coming at it from different angles if we all basically want to accomplish the same thing and use regular order and maybe we can compromise and reach across the aisle and do things like that. And these days, because everyone's sort of on camera 24-7 and everyone's sort of answerable to the people who aren't in the room, it's just like on Facebook, like just sort of as a normal individual, where before, like, oh, you're stuck in a room with your uncle, like, you have to talk to your uncle about politics for half an hour. And now it's like, you could just be on Twitter the whole time being like, you won't believe what my uncle said. It was so awful, I can't even talk to him. And I don't know, I think, to me, that's the biggest change, is the idea that you, you aren't talking to the people in the room. Right. And I I think people lose sight of the fact that that is a, you just alluded to it, right? That is a total microcosm of our society now, right? Like DC is just a microcosm of everything that we're dealing with everywhere, which is that, you know, like employers are trolling social media, you know, everything about everybody all the time. And it's, it's really hard to just look past people's flaws now, I guess. I don't know. No, it's, it's not even that also. It's just like you get to, if somebody says something that you don't agree with, instead of being like, well, hang on, here's what I think about this. I like, I get that you're coming at it from a good place. Well, some people will engage in that argument, but it's so easy for somebody to just like torch that quickly and like drop a flame onto the thread and, and that just becomes unpleasant. And so instead of engaging, you just sort of fortify yourself with people who share your beliefs, which is fine up to a certain extent. But then when you get into a room with like the supporters of one candidate or another, and they're saying, well, did you see I read on Facebook and they'll have some totally strange thing that you've never seen in your life because everyone's in their own feeds so that you're getting separate sets of facts in addition to separate sets of opinions. And that's where I think it becomes dangerous. Right. Uh, okay. So on that, on that subject, like who is your favorite political reporter? If you're going to recommend the uh, folks that, this, that listen to this podcast, like who should they follow? Oh my gosh. So I love like the post team. I think we have terrific folks like Dave Weigel, Robert Costas, uh, and Jetta Johnson, Abby Phillips. Like, I'm just going to plug the home team because I think we're terrific. Uh, Dan Balls. Uh, yeah, read the post. We're great. Uh, Maggie Haberman's terrific. She's at the New York Times, though. Um, I, Cost is amazing. I think he's really good. Yeah, he's yeah. incredible. And uh, like, there, there's, like, news, and everyone else will be like, oh, hey, somebody tweeted this, and he'll be like, yeah, I had that, like, half an hour ago. <laughs> That's got to be cool, like, around the office, right? Yeah, just, like, see him in the elevator and be like, oh, yeah. Dave Scoops. I don't know. Um, no one actually calls anyone Dave Scoops. That's just something I'm trying to start. <laughs> I, f- I feel like you should be the designated like post nickname giver. I mean, I, I guess like yeah. Chris Eliza already has one. I mean, you can't just be like, I mean, you get, but he needs a new one. Like you just can't call him the fix. You got to give him a new one. You can't nickname yourself. That's right. a big problem. Totally. You agree. can't just be like, I'm going to walk in and be like, Jim Schweppes. Where am I getting these? I should clearly not be the designated nickname giver if I'm calling myself Jim Schweppes. Um, <laughs> but like, oh, here comes Teal McNeil. <laughs> this is getting worse and worse. I think you just um, give everybody names as though they were reporters on The Simpsons. I think it's kind of maybe... Oh, yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. Or like House of Cards characters. Also, I love like how House of, what House of Cards does to... Like, Zoe Barnes, that first season, somebody comes in and insults her for being active on Twitter, which is the just is the funniest, like least accurate journalism thing I've ever heard. They literally come up to her, they're like, "Oh, Twitter twat, how's it going?" <laughs> no newsroom would ever do that to a successful young reporter who was active on social media. <laughs> Quite the opposite. Can you? But, I, I get asked so much. House of Cards is like just like how it is in real life, right? 
It's 0% like it is in real life. It's like they might as well be dragons for how accurate it is. I I cannot tell you how annoying that question is to me. (laughs) Like, I get it all the time. Uh, And it's it's obnoxious. It's just so completely... Like, Veep is correct, but House of Cards is just like, what even is anyone doing? I've never seen a politician shove somebody into a subway line, I'm just saying, into a moving train. I've never seen it. That's... Yeah, and specifically that subway stop also doesn't exist. So even if you were to do it, you would at least do it at Farragut North. Wow. So I, I like that uh, Alexander Petri has picked out her metro stop of choice. If she's going to shove somebody into the train, <laughs> she's got it picked out. Like, yeah, do it on the red line, but like do it on a real stop. Right. I mean, Lord knows the metro is going to like catch on a fire anyway. Probably people will just be like, oh, yeah, typical metro. <laughs> That's probably the system's fault. Well, they, uh, we won't make any Metro bus jokes about the various uh, collisions that have happened there over the years. So, um, no, like I don't want it's like not joking about people who have been injured right. or, you know, that's, that's just joking about the fact that it sometimes catches fire spontaneously. Joking specifically about the fires where no one is injured. Is it possible to tailor a joke that much? Might not be possible, in which case I apologize. The Metro North line in New York has been catching fire the last couple of days, like multiple days. It's very strange. Anyway. Um, yeah. They're trying to tell us something. All right. So to wrap up, uh, this is like a big, a big wrap up question, big meaty wrap up question. So you, uh, you went to Harvard, you grew up in DC. Uh, you probably, you could have gone a lot of different ways with, with a career and particularly with a writing career, but you picked writing comedy, uh, sort of like a, a comedic columnist. Um, like what, what, why do you feel like you chose comedy? Did you choose it just because you like to be funny or did you choose it because you felt like that was the most effective way for you to be critical in a, like a positive critical? Well, I, I'm going to go with that second answer because I like that. I think that is definitely the truth, but it's also like whenever I've been writing, I've just found that it's easier to try to make a thesis get across if you grieve it in some way and you can either grieve it by being like a glorious writer who uses beautiful lambent phrases and you know scintillating rhythms of speech or you can make some jokes and I tend to fall into the second category but also I think a great function of what you write is what you read and the people I grew up reading were like Dave Barry and James Thurber and Robert Benchley later once I ran out of Thurber and he's sort of like the methadone if Thurber is your heroine and you need to find a replacement quickly. I assume I haven't done either of those things, but I've been told this is a good metaphor. Um, and so I think all the things that I was reading and all the, I just love curling up with a good book of essays, like on the beach. I like took, I'm the weirdo reading God and man at Yale, like on the beach or at the bar. So when I sort of sat back and looked at what I was doing, I'm like, oh, this does make sense. In retrospect, given what you enjoy and given what you've always been reading, like, this probably is what you should be doing. I feel like also, especially in the modern media world, right? Like, comedy is comedy is king. How awesome was it to be to, to get a Dave Barry blurb then? Was that like, did you... Like, I'm still, like, on fire. <laughs> I can't even express how cool I think that is. Uh, because, yeah, he's, like, one of the reasons I do what I do. And so to A, like, discover that he knew I existed, and B, to have him say something nice about me, I'm, like, it was the biggest take in the world, basically. Did you frame it? Did you, like, did you, like, cut out the blurb and frame it? Yeah, obviously. That's what I... Uh, I got a tattoo of it. No, I'm kidding. I didn't actually get a tattoo of it. Uh, 
<laughs> but can't rule it out yet. That's what I would have done. So anyway. Um, all right. So A Field Guide to Awkward Silences is out June 14th in paperback. Uh, this has been Alexandra Petri. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. This is really fun. And just just to point out, people can follow you on Twitter at what? Petri Dishes. Petri Dishes. Just like Petri Dishes. <laughs> I'm just confusing the pronunciation even further. That's good. So you can follow her at Petri Dishes, which is, uh, which is good. You should do that because you probably already follow her parody emo Kylo Ren account. It is your duty now to go follow her actual. Yeah. Blue- and, you ha- and you have a blue check mark on that account. Oh, yeah, no, regular me has a blue check mark, and regular me makes way more bad puns and will tell you much more news than Kylo will. All right, fantastic. This has been a blast. Thanks for coming on. This has been Rocket Talk. <laughs>